Welcome to the Spark Revolution podcast, featuring the Phoenix Spark Innovation Team from Travis Air Force Base, California. Spark is Travis Air Force Base's innovation cell created in 2016 by a group of airmen who are tired of accepting the status quo. This podcast is a collaborative discussion on disruptive innovation with you, the airmen, who are hungry to solve problems at the lowest level. Join the revolution. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of the Spark Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and with me are my co-hosts, Brian and John. We hope you enjoy our candid conversations about innovation. We think this podcast plays a critical role in empowering our airmen to innovate at the speed of relevance, and we hope to join you as you positively change the way we do business. We're going to kick off this first episode with an innovation idea of the week. Over to you, Brian. Yeah, so uh, for, for the innovation idea of the week, what I'd like to do is uh, uh, loop in a caller here. Uh, we have uh, uh, Zach George uh, coming to us from the uh, sheet metal shop. Uh, Zach, can you hear us okay? Yeah. Awesome. Hey, Zach, can you, can you tell us a little bit about where you work at? What do you do over there? Uh, so I uh, work at Aircraft Structural Maintenance. Uh, I have 16 years of fabrication experience. Um, that's about it. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Zach. So, so how does, I, I got to imagine that with 16 years of, of experience over there in that AFSC that uh, uh, you've seen a lot of processes that have just not moved. Is that, is that accurate? Oh yeah, it, that's, that's definitely accurate. And Zach, this is uh, Chris speaking now and uh, you helped us develop something that's, that's pretty incredible. So I, I flew the KC-10 at McGuire for too long, some people would say, but for five and a half years and uh, traveled all around the world with a jet and the crews associated with it. And one of the things that we always ran into was securing our comsec and our weapons. Mm. And it would, you know, unbelievable amounts of time. So at least a minimum of 30 minutes upon arrival and another 30 minutes when we had to depart wow. just to collect and secure our comsec and our weapons. And this is something that we've had on our wish list since, I mean, I've been in KC-10 since 2011, now flying the C-5. So you took it upon yourself uh, with some other enterprising airmen to develop a solution for us. Can you just quickly talk about just a big picture, what you developed? Yeah. So uh, essentially we needed, we needed something that, uh, was able to securely store weapons and secrets. So we opted for a GSA-approved safe, uh, one that was already uh, approved to go to be mounted onto vehicles. <clears throat> so uh, it already has holes drilled on the bottom. So uh, we we ordered that um, in order to get it attached to the aircraft. Uh, we had to be a little more creative. We couldn't just drill holes into the aircraft and bolt it on there. So what we what we decided to do was to uh, use the existing seat track uh, that's in the cargo area. Uh, we created a, a, an adapter plate that would bolt into the seat track, and then another plate to cover over the uh, release mechanisms. And then you set the safe on top of that, and it uh, bolts directly down to that. So the only way to undo the bolts and remove that from the floor is to unlock the safe and remove the bolts. So, real quick. Why is it so critical or why was it so critical for you to develop something that didn't require piercing into the aircraft skin or into the cargo floor? Uh, doing, 
so modifying the aircraft creates a lot of hurdles for us to uh, jump over. Uh, we wanted to do something that we could quickly get out there uh, to the to the air crews. Um, if we opted for a, a method that needed us to modify the jet, uh, it, we would get the um, the SPO involved, and that would uh, you know really reduce our timeline to actually getting it out to the guys who need it. Hey, hey, Zach, real quick, can you can you just briefly discuss um, how did Travis Air Force Base's Spark, uh, uh, you know, because of course we're talking about joining the Spark Revolution over here and how we help innovate. Can you can you talk about how uh, the Spark Lab enabled that process to possibly go a little bit smoother, um, or or maybe go over some of the roadblocks that you ran into? Yeah. So <clears throat> the first way was. Uh, connecting the the people with the problem to us uh so this is a problem out of uh the uh ninth ars uh and just ha- giving them that conduit to to uh fabrication flight uh really moves along the process because normally we wouldn't just we wouldn't normally just be speaking in a social setting or uh, on a day-to-day basis. So, so connecting the problem to us was really uh, the way to get it kicked off. Yeah, yeah. So so sorry to interrupt you, but so what you're saying is that somebody from the ninth ARS wouldn't typically come over to the sheet metal shop and think about something like that. This was something that uh, uh, the meeting occurred over in the Spark office and you were there, you heard about it and you said, hey, I think I have a solution for what you're talking about. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it. I I would I would have never known that they were experiencing experiencing this problem, and that I had the ability to to help them solve it without um, without us both mutually being at a Spark meeting. Awesome. So those Friday pitch sessions where we have airmen over to our lab actually work, and they actually produce something. So to just to wrap this up, uh, we always talk about antibodies when it comes to innovation. And trust me, we love all our partners out there that help us get across the finish line when it comes to money, contracting, legal. But in essence, uh, we have to operate within the rules and the laws that exist out there. And sometimes that's difficult. So can you tell us just real quick the the roadblock we, we encountered when it came to finding out that somebody else was working on this? Yeah, so that uh, caused quite a stir up at AMC. We received a lot of calls that day, uh, really upset that we were trying to attack this solution or attack this problem, rather. Um, I, yeah, so uh, apparently, uh, unbeknownst to us, they uh, already had a solution in place uh, that they've been working on for the past three years, I believe. Um, they had team of engineers working on it but uh, um nobody nobody knew that people experiencing the problems uh the air crew uh had no idea this was on the pipeline nobody was communicating that with us uh i didn't have any clue so uh yeah people got upset and were pretty much giving us a cease and desist on this project um Hey, you know what? So, we're we're not trying hard enough if we don't get a cease and desist here at Phoenix Park because honestly that means we're getting attention that we normally would not have gotten. And that means that we're, we're doing our job and pushing the envelope. Hey, Chris, I, I have one more question for both of you. Uh, well, how does this change with this new safe? How much time does it save for you? Is it time, money? So it's actually both. So obviously the time it saves for the air crew to walk to the back of the 
cargo compartment in the KC-10 literally takes them maybe 10 seconds versus the 30 minutes of getting the entire crew on the crew bus, deplane the co-pilot and another crew member, turn in their weapons, and then get back in the bus, go to command post, and turn in their comsec. So you're literally saving at least an hour for every stop. So if a KC-10 crew has four stops on any given mission, which is quite the average, now you're saving four hours for every mission. So that's the time savings. And then the money savings, I believe Zach uh, had developed this solution, which cost $1,200 to include the sheet metal and the safe. While the solution, I'm not going to say a specific price, it was in the six-figure digits. Yeah, and and I think that that's really amazing what you guys are talking about here because it's not just modifying or modification, but this is real innovation occurring right here. Um, this is this is something that's creating something that wasn't there before, and not simply modifying something. Uh, and and that's what's so spectacular about this Spark Office over here. And thanks to Zach George for being our very first guest for the Spark Revolution podcast. Now, just because we were given a yet another cease and desist letter, uh, this is we, this is a save, right? Don't we have another aircraft we can use this on? Absolutely. And we'll talk about that in a future podcast. Thanks, John, for the segue. Next thing we'll talk about is an innovator of the week. We love highlighting our airmen here at Phoenix Park. We are nothing without our airmen and their ideas and their innovative ways to solve some of the toughest challenges we have here at the installation level. We're not expecting our airmen to solve higher headquarters or Air Force level problems. However, oftentimes with some scaling and some thought behind scaling the solution, we oftentimes are solving problems outside of Travis Air Force Base. So I'll pass it over to Brian, who will talk about our innovator of the week, our very first innovator of the week for the Spark Revolution podcast. Yeah, thanks for handing that over to me. So I'd like to talk about uh, uh, Senior Airman Tim. So Airman Tim, uh, this guy blows me away every single time that uh, I, I talk to him and and just getting to pick his brain and see how he works. So he's a loadmaster over with the C5 community. And uh, he had this idea of um, putting training in a virtual reality environment. And the benefit of that is that these guys can't typically train on things or they don't have that equipment available here. And so there are some things that they don't actually get to lay hands on or see how the aircraft interacts with those objects until they're in a deployed location or, or overseas in 140 degree weather. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, before the naysayers come out and say, oh, we're conducting training in virtual reality, mm -hmm. that, that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is augmenting the existing training. And the training that may get, go on in a classroom is now happening in an immersive platform in virtual reality. This isn't another CBT, is it? Absolutely not. So it's uh, taking what's happening in the classroom and actually letting airmen step into a virtual reality environment that is extremely immersive. Because what happens is their brain bites operate a little bit differently when they actually see the real thing in front of them versus looking at a piece of paper in a TO. Absolutely. 100%. So uh, I think you hit the, the nail right on the head there. Your brain cannot tell the difference between reality and virtual reality. And I, I was at MTech Next down at MIT just a few months ago, and they were talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning, this virtual reality and augmented reality space. And uh, they were up there saying that a professor from MIT was talking about how it'll take 10 years for your brain to be able to tell the difference uh, between 
the virtual reality environment and actual reality, not having the goggles on. That's incredible. And I'm sure in a future podcast, we'll just dedicate it to full up virtual reality. So how did Senior Irm and Tim get after this problem set? Because typically you would need either a ton of money or somebody giving you something for free. And I think we do have something on the f- kind of the free side. Yeah. Yeah. Free-ish. Free-ish, I guess you could say. Um, so uh, another great question. Uh, so Airman Tim is another uh, guy that comes in here on, on those Friday meetings that you talked about earlier, uh, curated a problem, came and said that, hey, I, 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 this is a problem for us. We don't get to see this stuff. I have an idea on how we can go and put it in a virtual reality uh, environment. He pitched it, and then we were able to go and facilitate through uh, the Small Business and Innovation Research uh, uh, Small Business Administration, try and get him uh, Small Business Innovation Research money and help him develop along with a company that's getting after that. Yeah. So the SBAR is a great program that has really exploded in the last six months, thanks to folks like Dr. Will Roper up at SAFAQ and the great folks up at AFWorks who help deliver these startups to the installation level and really help us work directly with CEOs of the best and brightest startups. And with our proximity to Silicon Valley, it's an amazing thing that we have this reach back capability just a mo- just a, just about an hour away south here of Travis Air Force Base. Absolutely, and it's it's funny that you bring up uh, Dr. Will Roper. So um, not too long ago, there was an article that came out and it talked about how the the world has changed and that we need to become competitive in the acquisition space. And and Dr. Will Roper, for those of you that don't know, is the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition. And, and just some really quick bite points from this is that um, the Air Force trend refers to speeding up that acquisition process. We need to get more uh, agile in how we are going and, and grabbing these things like Airman Tim has done and how we can go and work with companies out on the outside that are, that are creating amazing things and they have, they have such great technology. How do we get that? How do we, how do we get that um, and not let it take months or years to go and acquire those things. And that's, that's one of, uh, uh, Dr. Roper's, uh, that's, that's his MO. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another one is, is how do we expand the digital air force? How are we going and creating software? Where are we looking at in software development? And that's why we gave our ode to, uh, Kessel run today through our Boston lager, our, our drink of the day. So just to wrap them back up into here, and then, and then finally, um, we know that a disruptive Air Force spurs these game-changing ideas. And that's really where Airman Tim has come in here and disrupted with his game-changing idea. And that's, that's awesome. That's, that's so awesome. The, the big difference here at Travis Air Force Base is a lot of people talk about disrupting this, disrupting that. We are one step removed from the warfighter, from that airman who's actually going to be out there loading the cargo in 120 degree heat, maybe not 140, like you mentioned earlier. That's just what it feels like. Exactly. Actually, real feel. We are one step away from that airman who's driving the K-loader out on the flight line or the maintainer that is looking at his TOs in the pouring rain. We are one step removed from that warfighter, which gives us the unique capability to understand their problem sets. Right. 
And that helps us curate these problems with the folks that help us solve the problems, which are the companies through the SBIR program or through in-house development and working with people like Zach. All right. So now transitioning into uh, the next segment here, we'd like to discuss the problem of the week. We have many airmen that come in throughout the week over here uh, that come in and out of our lab. And uh, one in particular we'd like to highlight is a security forces defender uh, that was having an issue with their their radar gun, trying to keep catch all those uh, airmen uh, leaving out the door at 430 and speeding off base and busting our 30 mile an hour uh, limit. Um, we brought with us in here uh, Zach again, and Zach is going to talk about how him and his team went and and took this staff sergeant um, that came with a curated problem saying, hey, this radar gun is breaking. And then what Zach and his team did to, to help bring him to the promised land. So um, real quick, Zach, when, when the defender came in, how did you direct him to an actual uh, uh, solution? What, what did you do to coach him to where he needed to go or, or, uh, uh, or how he could fix this issue? Well, first was just understanding what the actual problem was. So the triggers are breaking. Uh, so uh, first question is, uh, can we buy triggers from the manufacturer? If that's the solution to the problem, that's the, that's the way we want to go. And, and what was his this. answer to that? Uh, that they don't sell them individually. You have to what? buy, yes, you have to buy a whole new unit, which is over $2,000, something like that. Get, uh, get out. So, so. For those of you that can't actually see this trigger, we have it right here in front of us. I mean, I'm looking at something that uh, is just simply a couple of uh, less than an ounce. And uh, I mean, it's it's a piece of plastic, right, Zach? Yeah, just a thin piece of injection molded ABS plastic. Jeez. I mean, it's kind of uh, obvious that the company would make it kind of as difficult as possible to replace this part, right? Why? What interest does the company have to just sell a five cent trigger? when they can charge you however X amount of dollars to replace the entire product. Well, I, I doubt they they expected it to ever break. Uh, I don't so, know. It looks pretty flimsy, Zach. Yeah, I, I think that it's going to take a lot of tick uh, to pay for another one of those things. Um, so <laughs> just getting back to it, Zach. Um, so uh, uh, Staff Sergeant, NCO type from Security Forces comes in, uh, says, hey, as I'm, as I'm radaring people coming down the road and I need to go chase after them, like like a cool cops episode, I'm going to throw the gun into the seat right next to me. Trigger's breaking. So you're understanding the problem. At what point did you think like, hey, I think that we could 3D print something like that and get you get you to success? Uh, right away, it was a fairly simple design. Uh, it, it was easy for us to just measure it out. So uh, after we realized that you can't just buy the trigger by itself, uh, we just started on uh, 3D designing it. And uh, it was very simple. We just made sure that the tolerances were the same and made something and also added in a, a, a little bit beefier construction. And, and so, um, and I think what's a real important kind of uh, message here for our listeners is, did you and your team design it from start to finish? Or how did you guys work with uh, the defender to maybe teach them a little bit about design as well? Uh, Every time we have that opportunity, we, we do take it, um, especially if somebody has the interest to learn. Uh, ideally, ideally we, we want them to be involved in that process. So the next time 
they have something break or they they need to fix something they will have the the ability to design it themselves and if they need to come to us to 3d print then you know we we can do that and actually i'm going to give a shout out to our phoenix spark intern nick who actually was the one who 3D modeled this, right? He works for you and on your additive manufacturing team at Phoenix Spark. So I just want to give a shout out to our intern, Nick, because he took it upon himself and literally within a week went from measuring, modeling, 3D printing to actually outfitting this on the speed gun trigger, bringing the original customer back in here and them just being blown away. So that'll wrap up our uh, segment here on the problem of the week. Right, and I just wanted to uh, raise my Boston logger here for for Nick and and also for you, Zach, uh, uh, and and the defender that came from security forces to come and 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 work through that problem. So uh, one last time here with our drink, and we appreciate all the listeners out here. Chris, back to you. All right, welcome everybody to uh, one of our special podcasts this week, where we're going to be talking about one of our uh, main uh, lines of effort here, Travis. Uh, being additive manufacturing. So the other three uh, are artificial intelligence, uh, virtual reality, and then uh, small UAS integration. So this will kick off uh, our set of podcasts talking about those four lines of effort. And here with me to uh, discuss the additive manufacturing uh, portfolio is uh, March and Jeff. Uh, If you guys don't mind just uh, quickly uh, introducing yourself. Thanks for having us. Uh, March, and I've been at Travis Air Force Base for about two years now. Uh, this is my third assignment. Before that, I was at Holloman Air Force Base, and then Luke. Happy to be here. Great opportunities, especially with 3D printing. Welcome, welcome. Jeff? Yeah, I'm Jeff. I've been here at Travis for 15 years now. I'm a sheet metal guy by trade. Uh, got involved in added manufacturing, looking in a, at a new way of making tooling, Got involved with the University of Dayton Research Institute, kind of helped facilitate us getting the printer here on base. Uh, I am now the uh, section chief in the aircraft metals technology section. March March and I work together. Uh, So you're kind of the old head in the shop, huh? Teaching all the the youngins? Yeah, there's only about two other guys that have been here longer than me. Nice. Um, Well, we'll step right into talking about the KC-10 Hot Cup, which everybody loves to talk about, we just got back from ATA and we actually had somebody from the Norwegian Air Force so stop by our booth and beeline to the hot cup, held it up like it was Simba and was like, is this the infamous hot cup? And which allowed us to talk about all the other 3D printing additive manufacturing um, initiatives we have here at Travis. So uh, Jeff, I know you were here, you know, when the whole thing went down, the whole public uh, affairs debacle, I'll call it. Um, really more of a miscommunication about what the initiative was about. So if you don't mind just, you know, quickly discussing it. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been helping out with the Phoenix Spark program probably since it came on board, um, just doing a few little um, fabrication projects. So I was actually here the first meeting when the young man brought the hot cup handle in as a problem, um, added a few suggestions on maybe a design change, and kind of saw it through and you know you you bring up the miscommunication the the story really was that it was you know a young man finding a problem with a piece of equipment that he uses every day and coming to us for a solution uh, we found a solution locally came up with a new design that solved the problem and uh, 
sent the, the handle out. And obviously we all know what happened when Fox News got a hold of the, the dollar amounts and, and whatnot, and it got turned into Air Force wasting money. But I think it's a really great story for innovation. Um, it's a great story for um, airman innovation, really. You know. So I just call it one thing. It's, it disrupted the system, right, the, the traditional system, the traditional ways of doing things. And, and uh, if you will, I'm going to use a pun. It, it sparked kind of the innovative revolution uh, at the installation level, right? We, Definitely. Back in the day, it used to be pretty much AFMC doing the traditional uh, innovations. But now uh, we are, you know, one step removed from the actual airmen with the compelling problem statements. And they're bringing it directly to us. And then we're reaching out to SMEs like, like you two to uh, get after uh, get after the problem and uh, developing the solution as rapidly as possible. Sometimes that means not thinking you know, through the public affairs uh, uh, fallout, the potential fallout, but uh, innovation is an ugly thing sometimes, right? Uh, it's, it's an ugly thing and sometimes it's, uh, it costs uh, resources uh, more than uh, your traditional uh, contracting mechanisms. So from there, um, I, I kind of just uh, want to segue into uh, discussing current initiatives, right, uh, and how our added manufacturing here, Travis, and really across AMC, has uh, matured. Uh, so I know uh, about a year, year and a half ago, uh, you all in, in Fabrication Flight uh, wanted to purchase the uh, Stratasys Fortis 900, uh, which is an industrial-grade 3D printer. Yeah. And uh, if you guys just want to, you know, quickly talk about that, and then we can get into more details. So the the key point in that is industrial 3D printer. So it's a very large printer, can print about three feet parts, three foot parts. They bond super well, so you can have parts of that size and bond them together to create even larger parts. A very capable machine that can support many different agencies. And we're definitely looking forward to having it here at Travis with all the agencies that we have on base. So what's the difference between that and the Lulz bot that's sitting right behind me or the MakerBot? Uh, what, are, what are the kind of the big uh, differences in terms of materials uh, it uses, speed at which it prints, and, and quality? They're virtually the same. It's just everything's on a grander scale. Size, temperature, material properties. They're more complex. They're more rigid higher tensile strengths. Um, some of the polymer materials can still be printed out of the large machine, the same as the small, but everything's just on a grander scale. Gotcha. And I want to give a shout out to our chief of staff of the Air Force, General Goldfein, because of his squadron innovation funds that he's pushed down to the base levels, it allowed us to fund uh, this, this 3D printer. Now, you guys got the money to fund it. It uh, was delivered. And then what happened? Yeah, so we got the printer late January, early February last year. Um, we had been working with the engineering team that helped us get the printer on finding a permanent location within our building. Um, they have some pretty strict requirements um, that they wanted the printer to kind of live in a climate-controlled environment, um, stuff that we couldn't meet right away. So we worked with local CE to try to make that happen. Um, the dollar amount was just way too high. So we had to scramble and, and find a location within our shop. Um, we monitored temperature and humidity for a little while and determined that 
our shop actually is a pretty decent spot for the printer. Um, so yeah, uh, CE came out, got it all wired up. Almost the day they finished, we had the guys from Stratasys come and set it up. A week later, we had guys from University of Dayton Research Institute come out and uh, do some training with three of our guys in the shop. And immediately, we hit the ground running. Uh, before the trainer left our shop, we were printing aircraft parts. That's that's so that's so awesome. Like it's rare in today's military that we we can actually get something that you guys all want, and then boom, like it's already spitting out things that uh, the warfighter can use. Uh, at any point in the process, were you guys like kind of losing faith? Like maybe we should scrap this thing, and it's it's too much work. And you know, obviously, you all have normal duties to accomplish. And this is pretty much an additional duty the entire time you're trying to stand it up. Yeah, once we received the machine, we were all super excited to get into the technology. But the first hurdle was obviously finding space. This thing is an industrial 3D printer. It's very large. And sometimes shop floors aren't laid out to receive large, large pieces of equipment like that. So some of the biggest hurdles is re- rearranging the shop, get everything functional, as well as having space for our 3D printer. One thing I want to say too is like our career field, we are machinist welders um, and now we're adding additive to that career field. So we've got a lot of CNC machines, a lot of mills and lathes. So we're talking about uprooting an entire machine shop to make this fit into the corner of it. So it wasn't an easy task. Well, you know, because you said, uh, you know, you alluded to sheet metal. So Zach on our spark team kind of runs our 3d printing portfolio and he always makes fun of me when I call it subtractive manufacturing. So can, can you, either of you just uh, lay down the law and tell me if I should stop using that, if I should just call it whatever whatever you guys call it. So, <laughs> so 3D printing is definitely additive. So you can think about a part as just adding layers. Right. And subtractive is what it is, and it will remove layers of metal. So CNC, um, manual machining, sheet metal, all of that removes material, so it's subtractive. So I can I can call it additive and subtractive. I don't know. Both I'm, of them combine or don't combine them. And I'm convinced that an additive guy made up the term subtractive. So. I can say that <laughs> <laughs> because you know they didn't they didn't take the word subtractive and was like oh well let's I, just call it additive. I think we're comfortable <laughs> with conventional manufacturing practices. Oh yeah, gotcha. Um, so how long did the entire process take from when you guys? Uh, pull the trigger on purchasing the 3D printer to getting the uh, latrine cover on the C5 printed. So I believe Just it's roughly. been almost exactly a year since it was funded. And part was printed in August and it was installed last month. Okay. So like with all your lessons learned, a, a base could definitely do it in, in a much shorter timeline. Definitely. I was just at the additive technical interchange meeting last week. Um, a big conversation within the community is how do I get my supervision on board? How do I get my building ready? How do I get you know this and that? Um, here at Travis, we're very lucky uh, working with you guys last year, especially with um, leaders like Colonel Leard. Um, being the champion of the Phoenix Spark program, we didn't have to convince leadership. You know, they were already on board. Um, our building is one of the standout machine shops in the whole Air Force. 
Well, there's a reason why all the DVs come through your shop and, yeah. and our shop, right? Because it's the, not only the sexy new thing, but we're actually like, you know, especially you guys, you're, you're actually producing something of substance out of the innovation uh, ecosystem, if you will. So uh, we'll now transition into talking about part selection. In previous briefings, you know, we had uh, Chief Wright here uh, a few uh, weeks ago. And I like to say, you know, we've transitioned from the KC-10 hot cup to the C5 latrine cover. People may find that funny, right? Like, yeah, we printed a handle for a coffee maker, which it's more than that. You know, as a KC-10 guy myself, I cooked many meals in that thing in the, in the deployed environment. And it's, it's something, it's nice to have a hot meal when you're flying, you know, eight-hour missions. So it makes more than just coffee. I'd like um, to add to the latrine cover is not a toilet seat. If you read Popular Mechanics, you may have thought that. Um, it actually just covers some some wiring and some tubing next to the latrine. So if you're sitting on the latrine in the C5, you might bump your knee on it. <laughs> gotcha. Once again, right, uh, kind of a communication right. uh, issue. So how do you guys decide or how do you decide to uh, go with that part versus, you know, other million other parts on the C5 or KC10, C17? So we have some leniency when it comes to selecting parts. Mainly it's non-critical, interior components, buttons, covers, levers, handles, things like that. But the more critical side, that's why we're partnering with the University of Dayton Research Institute. They do a lot of the determining, the testing of the aircraft parts to ensure that obviously nothing bad's going to happen. Once those are solidified, they're uploaded into Jedmix. We're able to download the file. And what's, what's Jedmix real quick? Jedmix is a database where all blueprints and additive parts will be uploaded so we can access them and pretty much print them anywhere there's an available 3D printer. Gotcha. I Googled it real quick. It's the joint, for those of you out in the audience listening, it's the Joint Engineering Data Management Information Control System. It's a, quite a handful. Do you think an additive guy created that acronym or... No, sheet metal guy. That's, that's been around for a long. That's an engineering thing. Gotcha. So that's an instant something outside. Yes. System. Gotcha. Um, uh, the latrine cover also. So let me back up just a little bit. We are very lucky um, in the C five community that uh, we had an engineer working at the C five program office who adopted additive and kind of got everybody on board with additive very early. His name's Cody Sargent. He now works for Air Force in the metals tech office. But um, he was one of the guys that started identifying non-critical parts that had long backlogs or were hard to manufacture or nobody was even making them anymore. And he started working with UDRI, figuring out how to not only just scan these parts and print them, but scan them, optimize them and make them an actually a new part that's better. And that's great for, that's great for everybody to hear, right? That this part, a lot of people, you know, if you read popular mechanics, Fox news, it seems like the part was chosen completely at random, but it definitely sounds like a lot of thought. It seems like that seems like, but you know, you've explained that the iterative process definitely took place when they decided to uh, pick this part. So in picking that part, how did you guys 3D print it? Did you have to model it? Was it already in a database or? Yeah, it was already in the database. Once the part is tested, approved, designed, it'll be uploaded into the database of Jedmix. And 
essentially from there, all we do is download it, upload it to our equipment, to our control software, which is called Control Center for the Stratasys. And from there, we can do minor things like we can nest them, we can print more part, more than one part at a time, and we can get our print times, our estimated times, as well as the how much material we we're, we're going to use, support equipment, and then from there, just hit go. So we paid a visit to the uh, UC Berkeley's Jacobs Institute for Design, and they had pretty much a rack of 3D printers, and their goal was to have those things going nonstop, 24 hours a day. So is that something you guys are shooting for or already doing? It's definitely something we're shooting for, but we are treading lightly when, when it comes to that subject. Um, a lot of people don't believe that it's our business to be manufacturing parts. So we do want the printer to be running 24 hours a day, but we want to do it smartly. We don't want to backfill the supply system. We want to, we want to mix aircraft parts with um, support parts for other organizations. Um, I don't want it to sound like we're looking to get into the business of manufacturing parts. For sure, yeah. You don't want to be, uh, you know, the Amazon of, uh, of random parts in the DOD. And that's something that the Air Force is still figuring out how this whole enterprise printing system is going to work. Um, Travis is the first base with the Fortis 900. We're about to be the first with a certified for airworthy parts. So we're kind of the test bed. We're feeling it out. We're providing a lot of feedback so they can decide how to roll this out at other locations. Would you say AMC is kind of leading the way uh, in terms of AM or is ACCF SOC, are they playing? AMC is leading the way as far as certified technical data packages coming out of the engineering offices. Yes. There are other organizations throughout the Air Force printing parts. There are other organizations that are prototyping parts. As far as following the Air Force's big Air Force's initiative, AMC is leading it and Travis is leading that charge. Awesome. That's good to hear. Um, before we wrap things up here, just a couple of last questions here. Have you guys been approached by other agencies on, you know, you utilizing the the Fortis to yeah. print some of their stuff every day. <laughs> yeah, can, even can you name some of the things or some of the things initially um, were more so just inquirers. We I guess word got out that we received our machine and it wasn't hooked up yet, and we were getting calls from random bases asking if we had the capability, if they could print stuff, and we would mostly stop them right there and say it's not hooked up yet. Just hold off a second. But since then, uh, word's been getting out, but we've been kind of trying to take it our route of printing aircraft parts, um, solidifying the enterprise's system of printing JEDMIX parts, helping to get parts uploaded in the JEDMIX. The way we are going to uh, help out other bases, I think, is by working with the engineering teams and printing test parts here at Travis so that they understand that they can print the same exact thing at different locations. So we're going to be part of the proving that the printing enterprise will work. So we are in works now through UDRI to print a first article test piece for a, I believe it's a like sunshade visor that they use in the U2. 
that will be the first part that we're printing in helping the engineers. Awesome. Um, any uh, parting shots? Uh, I think this has been a really good episode. Uh, just quick and dirty from from the hot cup to the uh, C5. I don't even want to call it the latrine cover anymore. Just a... Uh, it's a cover in the latrine. Gotcha. There you go. C5 cover in the latrine. Uh, anyway, we've matured uh, quite a bit in the AM portfolio for sure in the, in the last couple of years and quite rapidly. What do you get in the next like five years? So I think me and Jeff got a real taste last year when we went to GE Additive and seen the sort of advances that GE was doing. And hopefully in a year, we might be able to progress into maybe metal 3D printing. I don't want to speak too soon, but there's still a long way to go with polymer and solidifying and expanding. But there's definitely, the technology is vastly growing, especially in GE's platform. I, yeah, that and I'd like to say, I think there's a lot of organizations all working toward material certification and, and just, just, proving that AM is a viable solution and we're all so close. And I think we're getting to the point where everybody's going to start sharing information. And I would imagine in five years, we're going to be at a point where we, we can't even imagine right now. Yeah. The idea is to scale, it's, right? We, we're, we're now we're at the kind of a walk stage, maybe past the crawl or maybe in between. I'm not even sure we might still be crawling. But it's good to hear, though, that we're already thinking about scaling and how to uh, kind of develop the policy so that everybody's on the same page. Because with a lot of these new initiatives, right, it's tough to get everybody on the same page. It seems like everybody's bought in, that it's a great idea. But now uh, developing the policy is sometimes the most difficult part, way above our pay grade, uh, I would say. So thanks to uh, uh, Jeff and March uh, for stopping by the Spark Lab and uh, talking uh, additive manufacturing. Thanks, fellas. Thank you. Thank you. Airmen, we look forward to you joining the Spark Revolution. Visit our website at travisspark.org and check out what we're up to on our Instagram at Phoenix Spark Travis. Hit the follow button and we'll catch you on the next episode.